0: Welcome back to Peace Lutheran Church's Midweek Devotion Series for Lent 2021. I'm Pastor Mike, and we've been talking
1: about hands. Grandma's hands pray in church on Sunday morning. My grandma, she claps her hands and sings so well. Fall on a piece of glass. New York streets don't grow no grass. Grandma's hands used to soothe my weary mama. Grandma's hands, how they ache and sometimes swell. her face and tells my mama. She'd say, baby, don't you understand? I give you all the help I can. Just put yourself in Jesus' hands, Grandma's hands.
0: I like that. Just put yourself in Jesus' hands. That's Tony Orlando and Dawn's cover of Grandma's Hands by the great Otis Redding. I wanted to play that to reintroduce this year's midweek Lenten theme, From Dirty Hands to Clean Hearts, Lenten Reflections on the Passion of Our Lord. And while Grandma's Hands and the Hands of Repentance that Pastor Rob discussed with you last week are both the kinds of hands we welcome, not all hands play so nice. Tonight we discuss Betraying hands. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. King David of Israel knew a thing or two about betrayal firsthand. There was a member of David's cabinet by the name of Ahithophel, quite a name. Ahithophel was a close friend and trusted confidant of King David. He was a man who even dined at David's family table. And King David trusted this man's counsel and considered his, his advice blessed by God, for it had contributed to the outward success of David's kingdom. Yet, when David's son Absalom attempted a coup against his father, it was Ahithophel who betrayed David and joined Absalom's cause. For David, that kind of betrayal must have been devastating. Now, the only man with whom a king would work even more closely than a cabinet member would be his general, David's general was a guy named Joab, General Joab. David and Joab had seen a lot of life together. Who can forget, for example, Joab's fierce loyalty even when David asked him to be an accessory to Uriah's murder? Joab was the one who reported to his king in 2 Samuel, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. But eventually, Joab's loyalty to David ran out, when he backed Adonijah instead of Solomon to succeed David as king. That was how life ended up with Joab. So from the time David the little shepherd boy dropped Goliath with a sling until David's dying breath, his life was filled with more drama than Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones put together. There was King Saul who on multiple occasions tried to kill David. Then David's own sons schemed to steal away his throne. David's close friends betrayed him. He was constantly on the run from enemies, although it's unclear whether, in this case, he was talking about his cabinet member Ahithophel, or maybe it was General Joab that David had in mind, when he lamented his betrayal in the prophetic Psalm 41. Quote, Even my close friend, someone I trusted who shared my bread, has turned against me. Unquote. Is there anything more biting than betrayal? We may expect unbelievers to persecute us. We're not surprised when a nosy neighbor gossips behind our back. We know that corporate life, too, brings office politics. Yet, we expect our friends to be loyal. When we're close with someone, when we share our deepest secrets and trust him or her implicitly, It's intensely painful when he or she betrays that trust. Betrayal can burn with the intensity of the sun. It penetrates and scalds the soul. David certainly wasn't the first ever to be betrayed, and he's not the last either. Neither was his lamenting psalm isolated to just his own situation because Jesus himself invokes David's psalm in our text from John chapter 13 to predict his own betrayal by Judas. Like Joab, Judas was close to Jesus. And like Ahithophel, Judas was part of that inner circle, one of the twelve, a trusted friend who broke bread at Jesus' table. And like them both as well, Judas had lifted up his hands infamously in betrayal. You know, since the 1940s, nobody names their kid Adolf anymore, right? Have you noticed that? And since biblical times, nobody names their kid Judas either. The name Judas is so synonymous with betrayer that many actually wonder if Judas was innately evil or inordinately wicked from the womb. Well, why would anyone do something like Judas did to perfect Jesus? Jesus. It's true that Judas was sinful when he came out of the womb, but really in the same way everyone is born sinful. Judas was just as sinful, say, as Andrew or Philip, and just as sinful as you and I are. And just like the sinners, Andrew and Philip, Jesus also called Judas to be his disciple. And Judas heeded Jesus' call to follow. Judas went on missionary trips with the twelve, and then with the seventy-two he went door to door. Earlier in John chapter 13, we read where Jesus washed Judas' feet. And now here's Judas present on that holy Thursday as disciples gather one last time to celebrate the Passover with Jesus. The Bible also makes it clear that Judas had a particularly greedy heart. He brings it along with him to the Passover table. Do you remember, for example, when Mary Magdalene anointed Jesus' feet with her perfume? Mary's ointment was quite expensive, as you might recall, worth a year's wages. Judas at that time argued that Mary's deed was a sheer waste of money. The perfume should have been sold to help the poor, he complained. But the Holy Spirit lets us in on Judas' real motives. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief John chapter 12 says, As keeper of the money bag, Judas used to help himself to what was put into it. Yes, the love of money was a terrible temptation for Judas, and the devil also knew it. Satan was determined to wave that sin in Judas' face like a juicy steak before a hungry pit bull. When you've already sold out to dipping your dirty hands into the disciples' petty cash to use as your own personal piggy bank— It's a pretty easy sell for the devil to suggest. And what exactly would you be willing to do, Judas, for 30 pieces of silver? Judas most likely didn't concoct a carefully thought-out plan to betray Jesus, nor did he suddenly just flip a switch, for it was garden-variety greed, unrepented and unchecked, that was the sin that was corroding his soul over time. And eventually it brought Judas' betraying hands to the Lord's table. As John records, The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Betrayal hurts so intensely because it's so personal. But another part of what makes betrayal so corrosive is that it's done in secret. Judas was living a double life promoting himself as a disciple in his community, but letting his greed run amuck in his soul. The rest of the disciples were properly fooled for the time being. They thought of Judas as a friend and an ally. They didn't see the greedy darkness lurking in Judas' heart. But Jesus did. Jesus knew. Jesus chose the venue of the Passover meal to reveal his betrayer. Again, from John's account, we read, After Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Here's Jesus now, celebrating with thanksgiving God's deliverance of the Israelites from slavery with his disciples for the last time. This is the last supper, he informs them. His accusation that there's a rat among them brings... Instant tension to the room, like a sudden chill. The disciples react the same way everyone reacts when accused. They get defensive. They deny. They deflect. John describes it in this way. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. And then Matthew, in his gospel account, adds their questioning, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. There is more, in fact, in the disciples' words than just defensiveness and denial. Jesus hadn't identified the betrayer by name. He only said, one of you will betray me. And that sends the disciples' mind spinning into introspection. Was there a disciple there who argued self-righteously that he would never, ever do such a thing, that he couldn't? Remember, we know Peter said he'd never deny Jesus, and look how that turned out. Was there a disciple there who went soul-searching in self-doubt? Is he talking about me? Is he thinking, i do it? I know he's God. He knows everything and can read my soul like a book. He sees something in one of our hearts that nobody else can see. What does he see in my heart? Am I capable of this betrayal? Those questions were most likely going through the minds of all the disciples, but perhaps... We should probe our own hearts, too, on this matter. Are you capable of betraying the Lord? What secret sins are hiding away in the dark corners of your own heart? Have you ever sold God out for money, friends, acceptance, or maybe just out of sheer fear? Have your secret sins ever gone unrepented and unchecked for so long that they eat away at your faith and corrode your soul? making you afraid to approach the God of light? Maybe the sin of greed is crouching at your door. Or what is the secret sin that you fight to hide from everyone else but the devil places before you like a juicy steak because he knows what will get you to bite? Ask yourself honestly this line of introspection because this Lenten devotion would do you no good at all if all you take away from it is that Judas was a bad boy. Nobody wakes up in the morning determined to fail God, but we better know that we're all sinners, and all sinners sin in real life. Anyone is capable of any sin. That's the frightening truth about us, especially if that sin is left unchecked and unaddressed and unrepented of. What does the all-knowing Jesus see when he looks into your heart? And will you still answer, Surely not I, Lord. As the accusation that one of the twelve will betray his master continued to just hang there in the upper room, and the disciples scrambled to avoid blame, Peter signaled over to John, who was reclined right next to Jesus, Ask him who he's talking about. Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it into the dish. Then, dipping a piece of bread, Jesus gave it to Judas the son of Simon Iscariot as soon as Judas took the bread it says Satan entered him so Jesus then told Judas what you must do do quickly you see even at this advanced hour Jesus was trying to jar the conscience of Judas and dislodge the greedy grip that sin had taken on his soul by calling Judas out publicly not just here mind you But at least three occasions overall, Jesus had confronted Judas within the hearing of the twelve. At the end of his Bread of Life sermon in John chapter 6, for example, Jesus said, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? Again, when Jesus washed his disciples' feet in the previous part of uh, John chapter 13 there, he said, You are clean, though not every one of you. And now at the Passover table. Jesus dips his hand into the bowl with Judas' betraying hands. Jesus was reaching out to Judas. He was telling him, resist Satan and he will flee from you. Don't do this. Even to his own betrayer, Jesus showed love and pastoral concern for Judas' soul right up to the very end. Judas went ahead with his betrayal by identifying Jesus with a kiss. Jesus went ahead down a path that led yet to another betrayal. And this one even more surreal. Jesus went to the cross where in painful anguish he called out to a faithful friend who had abandoned him. He cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God treated Christ as though he had committed Judas' betrayal, as though Jesus had turned traitor like Ahithophel and Joab, and all the traitors down through human history. God banished Christ to suffer hell's punishment for our sins of greed, for our idolatrous love of money, for our obstinate self-righteousness, and for every embarrassing secret sin we insist on hiding. They've all been punished in full. They've all been paid up in full in Christ. As Isaiah says, by his wounds, we are healed. How could Jesus love and forgive traitors? Traitors like Ahithophel or Joab or Judas. Jesus did love them, as we saw, and he did forgive them. But at least a couple of those stories have unhappy endings. Ahithophel and Judas. Both were so distraught over their betrayals that they reasoned God's only move was to treat them in kind. They were so certain that God would betray them in return. They saw themselves forsaken. In an act of unbelieving despair, both men, Ahithophel and Judas, took their own lives. But the gospel teaches us that God doesn't betray sinners. That's the good news. God's promise today is to never forsake us. Instead, God turned his back on his only Son on the cross. He forsook Christ there. In that act, he reconciled the world full of sinners. Banish the thought then forever that God would now banish you for your sins, and don't let Satan or anyone else ever convince you otherwise. God made peace with man in Christ. God and sinners reconciled. Ask not then, brother or sister, how could God love and forgive a traitor like Judas? Rather ask, how could God love and forgive a traitor like me? Maybe your grandma gave you the answer. Put yourself in Jesus' hands. It is only for the sake of Christ that we are forgiven. In Christ alone, we will never be forsaken. Amen. And now may he who began a good work in you bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.
1: In Christ alone who took all flesh fullness of God in helpless babe. this gift of love and righteousness Scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I
0: live. God bless you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Until next week, the Lord keep you and give you His everlasting peace.